Welcome back to the Training Model Podcast. This is episode number eight, and you may have thought that I was going to miss a Monday upload, but that's incorrect. I'm just a little bit late today, so sorry for all those people that enjoyed listening first thing on a Monday, start their week off in the best possible way, but uh, just life has been kicking me in the nuts recently, But uh, so I'm a little bit behind on some work, but that's all right. We keep moving forward. We continue to execute on the plan. So we are back, episode number eight. Firstly, I just want to say thank you to everybody that both came to the webinar, but also purchased a ticket for the recording of the Understanding Center of Mass webinar that I ran last Friday. It was a great turnout. Um, And the response has been really positive with plenty of good discussions, which is the best thing from these sort of events and processes because the discussions is the nitty gritty of how we actually begin to improve our understanding, but also our application of the kind of topics and concepts that I unpacked. So very thankful for everybody that came. Awesome to hear that it was a great experience um, and we're starting to update and Uh, change the way we view some of these movement-based principles. So uh, one of the the biggest topics, and this is what I want to spend today going over, today probably won't be too long of an episode, but one of the, the, the topics that had come up a couple of times, both in the Understanding Center of Mass Webinar, but I've also been running one-on-ones with a bunch of uh, young coaches who are looking to understand and better apply these sort of things as well. And the most common thing that has been coming up in conversation is this idea of the glutes and sort of glutes versus hamstrings. Um, so we're going to talk about that today in, as it relates to sort of hip extension, but then how it also relates to um, to the management of just center of mass as a whole. So one of the one of the key things, pretty much the most important principle that we're trying to understand when we, we, when we unpack this center of mass application is how the skeleton shifts position when the center of mass is both pushed forward in space. So this is where we would see uh, pressure shifting closer towards the midfoot, maybe even going all the way forward into the forefoot. So if you want to just stand up and feel that shift moving forward, um, that shift in pressure is representative of where the center of mass is being held um, within the system. So pressure forward means the center of mass has shifted or drifted forward in space. And the response from the skeleton of that center of mass, that gravity pull forward, will be a very typical presentation, which a lot of people think about as like an extension-based posture. So from um, from like a PRI standpoint, this would be like a PEC pattern where a lot of the posterior musculature uh, has sort of moved into a position where it is shortened. It's, it's been moved to a shortened position. It doesn't mean that, that that set of musculature, so the common ones would be like the lower back, the erectors, the QLs, the lats, the mid-back. It doesn't mean that all of that back musculature, musculature has pushed the system forward. It just means that when the skeleton moves into that position, all of that back musculature has actually just moved to a more concentric state. So again, it doesn't doesn't mean that it has produced force to get there. It just means that as as a response to the skeleton shifting forward, 
a lot of that musculature has moved to a more concentric position. And um, one of the one of the key sort of uh, ideas that we unpack, uh, and I like to unpack when we discuss movement, is the length-tension relationship. So the length-tension relationship is uh, the relationship between the length of the muscle or the length of a muscle and the available tension or the amount of tension that can be produced within that position uh, if, and if anyone has ever seen the length tension relationship curve we know that and this also represents a lot within hypertrophy application and training around musculature that a muscle that is near its mid range or mid shortened range is going to be able to produce a lot of active tension and the reason for that active tension is because of the sarcomeres um within a muscle cell. So we have actinomycin filaments. We're, we're back into university here, physio, physiology 101. Um, but that sarcomere cross-bridging uh, potential is the highest when we're in a mid-range position. And the reason is, is because those cross bridges have a lot of, um, they have a lot of potential to actually grab on and create active tension. Um, and this is where, where people will find that they, they feel the strongest or they can create the greatest squeeze and all of that sort of stuff, more than likely is going to be in the mid slash shortened range of a muscle belly's resting length. At the other end of the length tension relationship is our, our longer muscle lengths. So we'll see an active peak tension in the mid shortened range and we see an, uh, and we see a peak lengthened or passive tension uh, in the lengthened range. And the reason for that is this is because um, when a muscle is under stretch, it is still able to produce tension. And that tension now comes from uh, different qualities within the muscle, different proteins. Uh, the common one is titan that gives muscle a little bit of its elastic nature, um, as well as some neurological or, or nervous system inputs that provide a little bit of that, uh, that tension, that length and tension potential within a muscle. But we also see this passive increase in tension in more lengthened states and we sort of see these two peaks of total tension we have our active peak in our mid shortened range and then we have our passive tension peak in the lengthened position of these muscles so when a center of mass actually shifts forward in space a little bit uh, and the skeleton is then a response to that it begins to extend so that we don't fall over part of the center of mass moving forward is so that we can move and propel ourselves forward and this is why this midfoot this propulsion if you want to use like the compression and expansion model and terminology but this midfoot where the center of mass is over the midfoot allows us to actually produce the most amount of force um because of that extension position that begins to drive through the system because that's how humans actually produce force. We extend the system, we extend and adduct and internally rotate our extremities. All of that begins to happen when the center of mass begins to shift forward over the midfoot. Um, and again, that extension just means that all of the muscles on the backside Again, the QLs, the lats, the mid-back, um, the, the erectors, all of those sort of muscles begin to transition to more of their mid-shortened 
range, which means they can have a lot of active tension within the system. And this is where I believe a lot of people feel tight. They feel tight in their lower backs. The lower back tries to take over because they're we're shifting all of that musculature towards its active potential. And again, something I said on Instagram this week is that muscle is dumb meat. When it's in a position to produce force, if force is needed to produce, be produced, it will help. It's designed to help and produce force. That's all muscle does. But it's a response to the skeletal position that dictates whether or not that muscle is actually going to begin to produce force and produce tension. So again, skeleton shifts forward. The system begins to extend. We feel pressure transition towards mid or forefoot. Um, a lot of that back musculature is going to start to take over. And this is indicative of a center of mass that has been pushed forward. Some of the joint positions that we may see in this posture uh, are going to be dorsiflexion. We may actually see the foot begin to pronate or flatten down as, as the weight shifts forward onto the foot, depending on the task that we're doing. The tibia is going to start to move forward in space and begin to close off ankle dorsiflexion. So if we can't actually hit depth, if we can't get the knee forward, there's a good chance that it's already forward and maybe we need to shift this thing back in space. Uh, we may actually see the pelvis begin to roll forward over the top of the femur. Uh, where we see an anterior pelvic tilt begin to present. Again, it's not a bad thing. I've spoken about this before. It's not a bad thing. Uh, it, it just becomes a problem if it's the only strategy that we have to produce force, which is to roll the pelvis forward and dump the system forward into more extension. If that's the only strategy we have, we may begin to present with some dramas, some dilemmas uh, around the, the lumbopelvic region as a result of that strategy being used in too many situations. Um, that anterior pelvic tilt is obviously going to close off potential hip flexion. So if the pelvis is rolled forward, it limits the amount of space for our, our femur to move up into a hip flexed position. So this is where we may see depth problems within the squats uh, or hip pinching in deeper ranges of hip flexion, things like deadlifts or conventionals, RDLs, deep squats, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and that is just because we've closed off the available joint space because the system has been driven forward. We're probably going to see an increase in lumbar lordosis, a decrease in thoracic kyphosis, the ribs being flared forward, potentially even externally rotating, um, which then reduces the, the, the potential for a a good diaphragmatic dissension, if anyone knows what the zone of apposition is, but that zone of apposition is, has started to be lost because of the skeletal position that the, the entire system is under. And that is that because we're erect, we're extended, the ribs are forward, we actually lose some of that potential for the diaphragm to descend down into. Um, if we then take it a step further into the upper extremity, as a result of all of that back tension and that 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 mid-back tension, we're actually probably going to see scapula um, that have been pulled down into retraction and depression and downward rotation. Um, and that then feeds into the arm being pulled behind us uh, into more extension, internal rotation and adduction. So we're seeing the same sort of presentations at both the lower extremity and the upper extremity as a response to the center of mass being shifted forward in space. 
Um, and this is why, and, and again, this is why sometimes a lot of people struggle to get their arms overhead is because of some of this lat tension, mid-back tension, and this position that the scapula have been driven into as a response of the center of mass that has been pushed forward in space. Um, because they can't get their arms overhead, because in order to get your arms overhead, this is from Eric Cressy, but the scapula needs to deliver the humerus. So if the scapula can't wrap around the rib cage and move around the rib cage, the rib cage can't come back in space and be retracted and depressed in space. The rib cage can't come back. The scapula can't go forward and around, which means that we are going to struggle to get the arm to move into that position because the scapula delivers the humerus through our action. So we need to get this, the rib cage back, which is shifting the center of mass back so that we can actually get the scapula to move up and around around the rib cage so we can deliver the arm overhead into reaching patterns and all of that sort of stuff. So um, this is the typical extended posture that a lot of strength, people that push performance in the gym uh, quite often present themselves with. And it's really just a response to trying to produce force, trying to fight gravity and to push down into the ground. Uh, and that is all of that extension that just drives into the system. And one of the comments or one of the topics that kept popping up both in the webinar, but also in some of these one-on-ones that I've been taking with people and young coaches looking to up, up, increase their understanding of these sort of things is the involvement of the glutes because the glutes have had a huge amount of, um, a huge amount of interest, probably Brett Contreras, but also a lot of people just like big butts. So um, glute training has has gained in a, a significant amount of popularity. There's full industries and products and everything surrounded uh, surrounding glute training. But um, how does the glutes fit into this sort of presentation of a center of mass that's drifted forward in space um, and, and this extended posture? So the glutes we know... Um, they obviously extend the hip. They have their best leverage, their best uh, amount of peak tension at more or closer to terminal hip extension, so towards the end ranges of hip extension. Again, part of that is because of the length tension relationship that when the, when the hip is actually extended, the, the glute fibers, because they wrap around the hip, the glute fibers are actually picking up better line of pull and better leverage the closer that we get to hip extension. Um, so that's where they're really going to be involved. And we see that also mirrored within research of deep hip squatting versus uh, sort of like quarter squats and the involvement of different hip extensor musculature. Whereas the adductors are going to have the greatest amount of uh, hip extension torque, especially the adductor magnus, in deeper ranges of hip flexion, and then it begins to transition to more glute the, the closer that we get to actually locking out and, and terminal hip extension. So we know that the, the glutes extend the hip. Uh, as, a res, as a result of their sort of line of pull, they also externally rotate the hip and they abduct the hip. They also have this fourth sort of action, which is kind of just coupled with hip extension, which is posterior pelvic tilt. And this, is, I think, is where the confusion around the glutes and the glute involvement with managing center of mass as the key principle of human movement um, sort of gets a little bit confusing. And that is because when the center of mass is drifted forward, the pelvis is rolled into an anterior pelvic tilt, which means the glutes do have some small amount of leverage to 
uh, sort of counteract that anterior pelvic tilt and actually produce a little bit of posterior tilt. And that is correct. They can do that. The problem is though, as we begin to posteriorly tilt the pelvis with a glute strategy, we're actually just starting to leverage some of that hip extension moment. And we're actually starting to get better leverage of pushing the pelvis more forward in space. And this, I think, is where uh, we can run into issues if we overuse a glute strategy to improve our management of the center of mass. Because if we use too much glutes, if we push too hard the, with the glute focus contraction, it's just going to continue to push the center of mass further forward. And this presents itself, especially around squatting, uh, where people have been taught to sort of brace and hold position with their glutes. Um, it presents in this this sort of strategy where the glutes are on and then we have a we have trouble beginning the descension of the squat because we've used a glute strategy to reorient the pelvis so we can get a better brace and find some abs but then we have to sort of let go of the glutes to actually descend down into the squat and what this typically presents with is either a very forward knee travel in the squat so that the legs just start to dart forward in an attempt to get down without letting go of the glutes or we just begin to see that extension occur above the level of the pelvis, which is going to be further lumbar extension, further back tension, and all of that sort of stuff. So using the glutes as a strategy to orient the pelvis, it is one way to do it, but I think it's actually counterproductive to actually what we require when we think about deep squatting, when we think about actually getting good function out of the hip. Um, and that is where the hamstrings actually come in. So the hamstrings are biarticulate, which means they cross two joints. They cross both the hip and the knee. Um, and there is research to support this, but in terms of movements where uh, both the knee and the hip, so squatting would be the obvious one, but in terms of movements where both the knees and the hips are both flexing and extending at the same time, we actually see a pretty significant down regulation in sort of force production from biarticulate muscles. So something like a hamstring is not actually going to be contributing too much to a deep squat. And the reason is, is because as we're lengthening at one end, as the hip is flexing down and the hamstring, the proximal hamstrings are lengthening, the distal hamstrings are actually starting to shorten because we're going through knee flexion. So the hamstring shape or change in length isn't actually that considerable, which means we're not actually going to be seeing a, a large amount of force production from the biarticulate muscle that is the hamstring. And this is where the adductors and the glutes because they only really cross one joint, they only really produce force at one range of motion, that is going to be the primary sort of movers and force producers within uh, those, those sort of uh, compound lower body lifts. If we compare that to something where like a stiff leg RDL or just a, uh, sorry, a stiff legged deadlift or just a standard RDL where we're fixing the knee position. So the knee isn't changing and all we're doing is creating a bunch of hip flexion and hip extension. We're now going to see an increase in hamstring contribution to that hip extension because the hamstring is actually stable at one end of the movement. So this is why we don't want to be seeing too much knee motion if we're trying to train um, the hamstrings through hip extension of RDLs and stiff-legged deadlifts. So 
that biarticulate conversation has to come into play. And this is where, and this I haven't really learned this from anyone in particular, but just going through a bunch of courses and seeing all this sort of stuff and, and learning how all this thing sort of applies to moving and shifting tension within the lower body, um, the way that I like to actually frame how the hamstrings operate in these larger compound movements in the gym is that the hamstrings kind of just floss they floss their tension between the knees and the hips and they shift and sort of control the relative position of the pelvis the femur and the tibia by shifting and transitioning their tension up and down the chain as required whilst the primary sort of muscle groups of the adductors the quads and the glutes actually produce majority of the force and also, you see the same thing at the front of the on the front side for the quads um, with the rectus femoris because that is a biarticulate quad muscle. It crosses the hip and the knee, and we actually see a down regulation in rectus femoris from things like squatting as opposed to just purely uh, leg extensions where the hip is uh, fixed. Um, and we can actually get more tension on that by opening up the hip position and doing something like a, a Eugene Teo sort of lying back uh, leg extension. But uh, again, it's just another example of these biarticulate muscles. They actually function differently when we talk about functional compound movement, squats, deadlifts, lunges, and all of that sort of stuff. So we can shift and better understand tension by better understanding that just the foundational anatomy of these sort of, uh, these sort of muscles. So um, the way that I, again, the way that I like to think about the hamstring is that they just floss, they floss tension and they control the relative positions of the pelvis, the femur and the tibia as we move through these, these patterns. So that the primary force producers of the quads, the glutes, and the adductors can actually produce and create that torque that's required to actually produce force and push down into the ground so we can stand back up. And this is why I don't like cueing and I don't recommend that you cue a bunch of glute focused strategy around reorienting a pelvis. Yes, the glutes can posteriorly tilt the pelvis, but they do not have anywhere close to the amount of functional implication that the hamstring does. And the hamstrings and the ab connection is actually what we need to learn and teach our clients to use so that they can reorient the pelvis, but still use the glutes for what they're designed to do, which is to produce a huge amount of force at late stage hip extension. So it's something that's been coming up quite a lot um, in, in, in the people that I've been helping and, and, and also the conversations around the center of mass uh, webinar. So it's been really cool to see that. But the, the easiest place I think that you can begin to start to help your clients and, and, and yourself better understand this hip position and this orientation of the pelvis um, is just in some very low level drills. I call these low threshold drills uh, and that is because they're low threshold because the threshold to execute and build awareness is quite low. They're close to the ground. They're unloaded. Things like planks and plank with a reach where you're actually driving your elbows through the floor, trying to round your upper back a little bit um, and causing that slight tucking of the pelvis, that shifting of the center of mass backwards and using more of an ab strategy to control that position is going to be really cool. The, the important thing with that drill is to make sure that your glutes stay quiet. We're not trying to squeeze your glutes in that reached position. We're actually trying to keep them quiet and consciously try to not use the glutes. And what you may actually begin to feel is that the backside of your 
your legs begin to build tension. Your hamstrings actually begin to orient that tension uh, and that pelvis, sorry, with tension themselves. So we're probably going to find some abs and some hamstrings if we don't over-cue and over-squeeze the glutes in that position. The other very easy strategy for you to begin to learn this sort of stuff is just like in a in a uh, on your back on the ground in just like a hook lying position, digging the heels down into the ground and actually starting to cue that posterior that posterior tilting of the pelvis by driving the heels down into the ground. Um, I've actually had coaches cramp in their in their hamstrings just doing that slight posterior t- posterior tuck. Um, and the reason is is because you're, we're probably just beginning to find true shortening of those hamstrings in that bottom position. Again, length tension relationship. That's where the most active tension is going to be able to be felt from um, the hamstrings in that position. So. A couple of a couple of things that you can learn there. The next thing, the next step up would just be going to a, like a goblet squat, an anterior loaded squat, and again trying to find that plank position. So reaching the elbows forward in space, driving the center of mass back, finding some abs, and not using your glutes to contribute to the posterior tilt. Again, if we've done this correctly and if we've built good awareness on the ground, you could probably begin to feel some hamstrings in this position too. Uh, And then finally, it's just transitioning that into actual squatting positions, whether it be front squats, high bars or low bars or anything like that. If we've done a good job in these low threshold drills, you should just be able to reorient your center of mass backwards a little bit um, and, and clean up a lot of those mobility restrictions. The tibia will come back. The foot will begin to supinate in some capacity. The pelvis begins to posteriorly tilt, opening up hip internal rotation and hip flexion. And because we haven't used a glute strategy, it means that we can actually begin to descend the squat quite easily and quite sort of comfortably. Uh, It becomes quite an efficient movement when we've reoriented the center of mass using the flexor group, the abs, the hamstrings, and the upper body would be the serratus. So plenty of great conversations around that sort of stuff. Um, I think the easiest place to learn it, if if you are in Melbourne and you're keen to do more, just book in for a one-on-one technique session. I've got more and more of them coming in, which has been awesome to see, but I'm here to help if you want to learn how to apply these sort of concepts uh, within your own training and within your own clients. The best place to learn this sort of stuff is generally just in-person feeling and going through the process yourself. Um, So if you are interested in anything like that, uh, I would be keen to jump in for a session with you. But um, plenty of anatomy chat there uh, right now. The only other thing that I really wanted to talk about um, is what's coming up for training model over the next few um, over the next few weeks, which is uh, I'm nearly at a point where I can begin filming, but uh, my coaching foundation course. So it's just going to be called training model, um, and it's all of the programming, uh, the movement, uh, the principles and models and lenses that I use, and then also coaching applications um, for actually managing your clients and getting better outcomes with your clients. But all of that is going to be into a short course. There is a uh, an early bird. Uh, uh, offer on right now, which is to save $100 on the course. Uh, that will only be available for people on my email list. So if you're interested in in jumping in on that, uh, I think the launch date is the 11th of December. So we're probably about three or four weeks away from the launch date of that. Um, but with that second course up and running, I will have all of my foundations set within training models. So the business foundation course, we have 21 coaches in there now, which is awesome, but that will be set. And then the coaching foundations course will be set. Um, and they, they're just going to sit there and live there forever. As I begin to, to 
start to move more in the direction of, of what I wanted to do uh, with training model as a whole. And that is uh, in-person events and uh, all of that sort of stuff to move forward with it for next year. So I'm going to really push my understanding movement seminar and, and, and try and take it all around Australia uh, and really try to dominate the, the movement space here in Australia. That's one of my goals um, for next year. So um, that, that coaching foundation course, that training model short course, uh, again, if you're on the email list, you, you can get early bird access and uh, we've already got a couple of coaches in there, which is awesome, but that early bird access will only be available for those on the training model uh, email list. So if you're keen on, on learning more around the coaching side of things, I'd recommend jumping in there. Um, that's all that I'm going to have for today's episode. As I said, life is uh, is kicking me in the nuts at the moment, so I don't have too much time, too much available time um, to, to designate to this podcast this week, but we will be recording a new one for next week, uh, and I'm going to put out some question boxes throughout the week. So if you are keen on a topic or a conversation that we'd like to see unpacked on the training model podcast please uh shoot me a dm fill out the form on the podcast uh, on the website sorry or fill out the question box when i throw it up on instagram tomorrow so uh again thank you very much thank you for being patient with me uh, i really appreciate everybody for tuning in everybody that came to the, the webinar i think it was awesome uh, if you've got quest- further questions around any of that sort of stuff just let me know i'm here to help and um we'll see you next week